All right. So as we're getting into this passage, I want to start by um, taking you on a little thought exercise. So I want everybody in the room to try to remember where you were on September 11th, 2001. Okay, September 11th, 2001. A little chuckle up front here. Um, because a few people in the room were not born yet. Okay, Hazel. Um, so uh, a few people in the room were not born. Everybody else, do you remember where you were on September 11th, 2001? Right? You, you remember because it was a big deal. Right? It was a really big deal. And we know that that was the day that the um, Twin Towers, the World Trade Center, um, was bombed, basically, attacked those two planes that flew into them, and um, ultimately they collapsed, right? And so that was a really big deal. Now, imagine if Hazel here, who, who I, you're, you're getting picked on because you drew, your, drew attention to yourself, so, um, so here we are. So um, imagine if Hazel decides, you know, I don't, I don't believe this stuff about the, the Twin Towers being taken down. I mean, how do we know that that really happened? Do, do we really know that that actually happened? In fact, how do we even know that there really were two towers? I mean, if we go there, they're not there now. Maybe they were just photoshopped into the pictures. I don't know. How, how, would, we, how would we know? Well, fortunately, we're close enough to the events. Thank you, Charles. He, he's, he's next in line, okay? Um, uh, we're close enough to the events that there's all kinds of evidence that we could present, right? So I could give my own testimony. I remember where I was, and I remember watching live television of when the, the first tower had been hit, and then the second tower, I, I believe I was watching live when the second tower got hit, and then I, I remember seeing the towers collapse, and it was tragic, it was horrible. Um, I could tell you about a few years earlier, several years earlier, when I was in high school, and I went on a field trip to New York City, and we got to go to a Broadway play, and we got to go, because I grew up in Pennsylvania, um, Broadway play, we got to go up in the Statue of Liberty, and we drove right past the World Trade Center in our big tour bus, and I remember looking up and like not being able to see the top of the building, because it's so tall. It was just crazy tall. Um, I could tell you about, um, about a year after the events of 9-11, um, going on a trip to New York and seeing the gaping hole in the ground after they had cleared out the debris and seeing and it was all fenced off and people would walk up and there were little memorials on the fences and stuff. Um, I could point out that our government spent about 20 years at war with terrorists because of um, the events of that day and that I have friends who fought in Afghanistan and Iraq because of what happened there. Um, but if I really wanted to, to prove it, what I would say is um, I would reach out to my friend Mike Cortez, who was my roommate in college, who went on to be a firefighter in New York City. Um, but he wasn't there. He was off that day. Um, but he had friends that died in the towers that day. So there's a lot of evidence that I could point to. And if, if Hazel still didn't believe me, we could go downtown New York City and just start talking to people, and we would probably encounter some, probably thousands of people that were there the, that day and saw this happen. So if you want to prove something, here's, here's my point in all this. If you want to prove something, it's really helpful to have multiple pieces of evidence that you can point to. Um, eyewitness testimony, some of the facts around it, 
And that's really what Paul is doing in the passage today. Um, Paul's point, Paul's point in the whole thing that we're going to look at is that the gospel he preached came straight from God. So he didn't make this up. Um, it's, it's not something he's just, you know, making up and passing on. Um, he's going to spend a full page in your Bible or so proving that the gospel he preached came straight from God. So kind of a summary of his, his train of thought here. Um, first, he had no reason to make this up, and yet his life is radically changed. Second, he's not passing on second inf- secondhand information. Third, he's not passing on some new and different gospel, as if he has his own version. And then fourth, the message he preaches is authoritative above even the apostles themselves. Okay, so we're going to kind of walk through those in detail, and and we'll see that. Um, But what he's wrestling with is a question that is really relevant in the world today. How do you know what is true? How do you know what is true? And who gets to determine the truth? Uh, There were false teachers of the day that were claiming one thing. Paul was claiming something else. How do we know who's right? And um, at times, uh, people have tried to, to prove they're right in various ways. You know, there's might, make, might makes right, you know, whoever has the, the biggest gun wins. Um, there's, there's popularity, you know, whoever has the most followers. Paul doesn't do that. Paul says, I'm going to point to historical facts that can be proven to show you what the truth is. Um, and so the message that, that Paul preached is true, it's authoritative because it comes from God, and He's going to show us that. Okay, that's, that's the point of what we're looking at. And I really feel like we need to internalize this message. I think it's really important for us today because of the way truth is on trial in our culture today. And so you see this all over the place. I mean, you can drive through a neighborhood and you see a little yard sign that says, love is love. And we know what that's saying, Right? It's saying that the biblical view of marriage is wrong, that we ought to accept whatever anybody wants to do, right? How do we know who's right? How could we know who is right on this particular issue? Um, or, or, I mean, the plurality of, of different religions that are out there in the culture today. Who's right? How do we know? Who, who are we to say that the Christian faith is superior to all the others? Okay, so, so really this whole question of truth is, is on trial. And those are pretty extreme examples that I just gave, but, but Paul's dealing with something very specific, a little more nuanced. Paul's dealing with some people who um, would teach about Jesus, who would say that following Jesus is a, is a good thing as long as you keep the Old Testament law. So these Gentiles that want to follow Jesus, that's so great. They just need to get circumcised. Then it'll, be, then it'll be great. Otherwise, they're kind of missing out. And Paul is 100% opposed to that. And so, as we'll see in Galatians, he's insisting that salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. And um, where did he get his authority to preach this message? How do we know that he's right? That's, that's really what we're looking at today. And so, um, the accusation that he was apparently dealing with is people saying that he was just making this up that this was his own message. 
So we're going to start in Galatians 1.11 that Eliza read for us. And I just want to point out verses 11 and 12 here, which is really Paul's thesis statement. Okay, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's his central claim. Everything else he talks about is going to be to back up that idea. Um, he refers to them as brothers, which is, which is nice because he's pretty stern throughout this. But he, it's a reminder, he does care about them. And he says that he received this message as a revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's helpful for us to remind ourselves of what Paul experienced. So I'm going to read for you read to you from Acts um, chapter 9. Um, if you want to turn there, you can. Acts chapter 9. And I just want to read the story of Paul's conversion. And it's interesting, Paul shares this story three different times in the book of Acts. Um, by the time you get to the end of Acts, you're like, okay, Paul, we know. <laughs> you keep telling us. Um, and then he, sh he brings it up several times in various letters that he writes. It was, it was a major um, part of the message that he was carrying forth. So let me read this for you. Acts chapter 9, I'm going to read through verse 1 through 19. But Saul, who he went by, you know, Saul was his Jewish name. Paul was his Roman name. Um, Jewish people would often have a basically first name, middle name. Um, his first name was Saul. His middle name would have been Paulus. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying." And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. You can imagine Ananias is like, I don't want to go. <laughs> Sounds like a terrible idea. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. It's interesting, as you hear that story, Saul is committed to taking out the Christians. And he probably felt that he was doing a good thing. You know, he's, he's not going out to do wrong. He's going out because he has religious zeal, and he wants to take out who he believes are, are false teachers or, or, or um, people that are following a false religion. And so he goes out with this, this in mind, and Jesus shows up, and he says, I want you to go to the next town. I'll tell you what to do there. <laughs> He's not really, like, invited to, to make a choice, like, do you want to follow me? It's, it's more like, okay, I've got a mission for you. And um, so Paul, throughout his life, never, never turns back from that. From that moment forward, he is committed to following Christ. Um, it's, it, when Jesus speaks... It has an effect. So it's, it's like when Lazarus is in the tomb and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus doesn't have to like, decide whether or not to do this, right? Lazarus just comes forth. Well, the same kind of thing happens with Saul, who is now the Apostle Paul. Paul, you're with me now. I've got work for you to do. And um, so really, that's, that's Paul's experience of, of what transformed his life. And so he says, you know, I received this message through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And what Paul's going to do as he goes into this is he's going to explain how his life was transformed. And so in verses 13 through 17, um, what Eliza read here for us, um, he has us consider several things. First, he has us consider his life in Judaism. Uh, he was persecuting the church. He was zealous for his Jewish traditions. He was advancing beyond his peers. He's like, he's, he's like the star in, in the world of Judaism. Um, he had every reason to continue what he was doing. So you can imagine, you know, you're an athlete, you're working your way up, you get to the point where you're going you're gonna to be in the Olympics, and, and you, you've got national attention, you, you, maybe you score a marketing deal with Nike, and then one day you just say, nah. What? We would want to know why. There has to be a reason why a person would turn away at the height of their accomplishment, and that's exactly what Paul did. He turned away. Why? Um, cons consider his conversion to Christ. Um, he had the support of the Jewish authorities. He had the support of the high priest who sent him out with orders. And now he is on the other side, and he's going to be persecuted by the Jewish authorities. Um, consider his mission. His commission is to go out and be the apostle to the Gentiles, which is not going to win him any favor with the Jews. <laughs> He, he is, um, from this point forward, all he has to do is say the word Gentiles, and they, and they erupt in, in anger around Paul. Um, why would he do this? And the point that he makes here and the reason why he's continually telling his story is because nothing makes sense of Paul's life except for the fact that he had a, 
an encounter with Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus showed up to him, not in a mystical way, in a very real, physical, tangible, he's there. Paul has a blinding vision. Paul gets led to the next town. It's confirmed by this other guy who also hears from the Lord. And so Paul's conversion really proves to us that something happened. It's undeniable. Um, Even skeptics today will admit something happened with Paul. We don't know what, we don't want to admit it, but something happened. This man who was clearly committed to Judaism and persecuting the church then follows Jesus and is willing to suffer for him. Um, What Paul goes on to explain here is that when he met Jesus, he not only received the call to follow Christ, but he also received the call to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Jesus says, you're with me now, and you have a job to do. And that's very similar to us, right? There's some major similarities here, but it is different, right? I didn't have a blinding vision from heaven, and Jesus did not declare me the apostle to the Gentiles or you, right? So there's something very unique with Paul and what happens with him. So when he gets down here to verse 16, he says that the Lord was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Okay, his point there is he didn't need to get um, authority to do this work from the other apostles. He got his authority to do this work from Jesus. Jesus sent him on this mission. Jesus is the one who sends him out. And so then you get to verse 18. Let me just walk you through what he's saying here. He's saying that his message was established without the apostles. He didn't need the other apostles. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. He says, what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Why is he bringing up all this history? His whole point is that he did not need the others to confirm this. So he points to Cephas, which incidentally, he's going to talk about Cephas and Peter. It's it's the same person. John 142, if you could put that up there. Um, John 1.42 is helpful, Isaac, uh, which, set, which points out, so Simon was his name. Simon was like Dave or Mike. There's lots of, lots of Daves and Mikes in the world, so you have to clarify which, which Dave do you mean, or in this church, Steve, right? Which Steve do we mean, right? We've got a few. So, so you have to clarify. And so they would often either, you know, Simon, son of John, or they would give them a nickname. So, you know, for Simon, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. It's the word rock. And so in Aramaic, it's Cephas. In Greek, it's Peter. I just clarify that because it's confusing. So um, in this passage, um, he speaks to Cephas. Later, he gets called Peter. Um, and, and really, Paul's whole description here reads sort of like an alibi. I wasn't even there. I wasn't even up there. 
I spent three years out preaching the gospel. And then, then I went up there. I spent 15 days with Peter. I met, I met James briefly. But that's it. That's it. Not, then I was gone. And so his whole point is he didn't get this message from the apostles. He's not like a disciple of Peter and therefore passing on secondhand information. His message came from God. He goes on then to say that his message was later verified by the apostles. Okay, so it's not like he has a different gospel. It's the same gospel. So let's read on. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who sleep, slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So Paul, again, he's giving you ancient history here. He's dragging up all these facts from the past in order to make a point. He went down to meet with the apostles to find out if for some reason he had the gospel different than them. And what he finds out here is, no, they have nothing to add to his gospel. It's the same message. They're just going to different groups. And so Titus, he says, was not forced to be circumcised. And that's important because the context here is you have these false teachers saying, the Gentiles need to get circumcised if they're going to follow Jesus. He says that, that wasn't necessary. They didn't even make this happen. Um, it's interesting. Uh, Paul refers in verse 4 to these folks as false brothers who came in secretly. They're not real brothers. These are, these are not folks who are following Christ. And that's a big deal because what Paul's going to do is, as we go on through the book of Galatians, Paul is going to say that just because you say Jesus is Messiah... That doesn't matter if you get the whole gospel completely wrong and you're leading people astray. So it's more than just the name of Jesus. We need a few details filled in. And so he calls them false brothers that come in. There's a couple important things, a couple other things that he says here. Um, first, in verse 6, he says, they added nothing to me. There was nothing more that they needed to add to Paul's gospel. Um, but then the climax is in verse 9. Um, where James and Cephas and John, James, Peter, and John, the inner circle, the three, the guys that were with Jesus all the time, 
Um, they extend the right hand of fellowship to, Peter, to uh, Paul and to Barnabas. And so really what you see there is agreement on the gospel and cooperation in the mission. They basically said, you guys are with us. We, we agree, and um, we'll go over here. We'll reach the Jews. You guys go over there. You guys reach the Gentiles, but we're in this together. And so there was no disagreement. And so what you see, just walk this through, Paul meets Jesus and gets the gospel and preaches the gospel. Paul doesn't need the apostles to send him out. Paul doesn't need their message. In fact, he has the whole content all on his own because he met with Jesus, right? Now, he meets with Peter, and I'm sure they didn't just talk about the weather. I'm sure they confirmed, you know, the details of the gospel. But Paul didn't need them to give him the gospel. Fourteen years later, Paul comes back checking in. So we're good here, right? We're doing this all right. And there's complete agreement on the gospel. That's his point. So then you get to this, this part that's just fascinating. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul is going to confront Peter, the apostle. Okay? So Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay. The basic setup of this story is just fascinating. So you can just imagine this confrontation, Paul against Peter, right? Like a heavyweight championship. Who, who's going to win this, this little conflict here? And, and you can imagine how this kind of took place. And it really comes down to peer pressure. So Peter's up there. He's eating with the Gentiles. Everything's going along fine. And then somebody comes up from James. Somebody, you know, James is down in Jerusalem, sends up messengers, and uh, they show up to him, and, and you can imagine what they might have said. Um, James is writing to, to Peter, and he's saying, like, hey, could you stop eating bacon? It, it would be really helpful if you would stop eating bacon and ham sandwiches and, and pepperoni pizza. Um, because, you know, words getting back to Jerusalem that the apostle Peter is eating bacon and it's making things kind of tricky for us. So if you could just like kind of tone down the, you know, tone down that stuff. And so Peter, he just wants to be helpful, right? He's just trying to be helpful. And so he's like, okay, yeah, you know, it, it does, it kind of looks bad for, I mean, James is trying to reach out to Jewish people and now this is getting back to them. So he's like, okay, I, I won't eat with the Gentiles anymore. Well, Peter has huge influence and so Peter stops eating with the Gentiles, and all the other Jews stop eating with the Gentiles. And then Barnabas goes along with it. And at this point, Paul steps in, and he's like, no, <laughs> this, this, is, this is unacceptable. The question here is, who has the authority? Who has the authority to determine what's right? Is it Paul or is it Peter? 
You know, we could make a, a case for Peter, right? Peter's kind of like the head disciple, okay? If anybody has authority, it's Peter. He's with Jesus through it all. It's Peter who declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter walks on water with Jesus. Peter's there with James and John at the transfiguration. Um, you know, after Jesus is resurrected, he comes, meets with Peter on the beach and commissions Peter, I want you to go feed my sheep. You know, Peter, he's got the credentials. Why would Paul confront Peter and tell him he's wrong? Right? That takes some nerve. Um, is it because, and this is the, the key question, is it because they disagreed on the gospel? And the answer is no. They did not disagree on the gospel. They absolutely, 100% agreed on the gospel. There was no question. There was no confusion there. Um, Peter was not preaching a different gospel. The issue is that Peter was acting inconsistently with the gospel. That's what Paul says. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, then he confronts him. And so, in refusing to eat with the Gentiles, Peter didn't come right out and say something false, but what he was implying is that the Gentiles uh, were missing out on something. They were lacking something. Even, even though they had Christ, they were missing out, and Paul's not going to put up with it. And so, what we see in this is that Peter is not the highest authority. Paul's not the highest authority. God is the highest authority. And God had given them the truth of the gospel. And that truth is what they needed to, to uphold. Um, as a side note, it's fascinating what happens here. Does it seem odd that Paul would confront Peter in front of everyone? Why does he do that? Why doesn't he take Peter aside and privately discuss this with him? Well, the reason is that Paul's, or I'm sorry, Peter's bad example is leading everyone astray. And so um, we see over in 1 Timothy 5 what Paul teaches on this. If, there, if you have a leader who is leading people astray, look at what it says. Um, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. And so when a leader sins, if, you know, me or Dan or Brian, one of the elders of the church, you know, if you, if you find that we are sinning and persisting in that, you know, not without two or three witnesses, but, but that needs to be confronted. And in a public way is what he says. So Paul... Get back to this story. Paul's been building his case. He's building his case. He says, you know, I received this message from God. I didn't need the apostles to send me out. They verified it's the same message. And this message is actually authoritative over even the apostles, right? This message comes from God. That's the whole point. It is a firm foundation. We can trust the message of the gospel, not because Paul presented it, but because it came from the Lord. So how does that affect us? Why does that matter for us? Um, the first thing I think is, these flies, the first thing is that ideas matter. There is such a thing as objective truth. And, and our world today is really challenging that notion, that there is such a thing as the truth. And, and the Bible 
And Paul in particular here is going to fight for the truth and fight against lies. And we need to be willing to, to do that. Um, a second thing is that you can be confident specifically in the truth of what Paul is preaching. Um, verse 11, you know, Galatians 1.11 says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Paul just spent a, a whole page in your Bible explaining this point. Why the ancient history? Because it matters that we are confident in the message of the gospel. Um, everything that he's going to build on top of this is rooted in this idea that, that this came from the Lord. This came from God Himself. Um, I think another thing that, that this matters for us is just recognizing how, how peer pressure can influence us. Um, you have Peter compromising his convictions because of peer pressure. And, um, you know, I... I probably experienced peer pressure the most when I was in high school, so I feel for the high schoolers. Um, but I, I think that's something that probably every one of us has experienced peer pressure, and probably if we're honest, most of us have given in to peer pressure. And even the apostle Peter gave in to peer pressure and led a whole bunch of other people through his peer pressure. So what do we do about that? What Paul does is he steps in and provides some better peer pressure. <laughs> he confronts him. And we need people in our lives to call us out when we, when we compromise on our convictions. And so it's, it's just a great reminder. Uh, the last thing I, I just want to point out is Isaiah 26.4. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. The reason Paul's message was trustworthy was not because Paul's such a great guy. Uh, the reason why you can trust, you know, the things that you hear uh, when you come to church on Sunday morning here uh, is not because of Adam or Dan or, or anybody else that gets up here. Uh, the message is trustworthy because it's from the Lord. Amen? Um, we can be confident in the Word of God. And so... It's just, just a great reminder, and Paul is really laying foundation here, but it is a firm foundation that we rest on because God is the rock, and we can build our lives on.